CQ, CQ. November India 4, Bravo Kilo. November India 4, Bravo Kilo. Special Event Station, USS North Carolina for Veterans Day. <laughs> Good morning. You are tuned in to Lawn Darts Radio here on Little Rally Radio, streaming at littlerallyradio.org. Extended session there from uh, Link Ray and the Raymond, <laughs> Trail of the Lonesome Pine, we had Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Link Ray, yes, veteran, yes. honorable service in Korea, giving him a distinct voice, Absolutely. Link Ray. We salute you. We salute you, sir. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service to the country and to Rock and roll music. <laughs> <laughs> well, well deserved. Well deserved. Done uh, North Carolinian, done good. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. Well deserved honor into the rock and uh, rock and roll Hall of Fame. Making the le- or their organization slightly more legitimate, just like he makes our show slightly more legitimate <laughs> each and every week, <laughs> but marginally. <laughs> <laughs> that beautiful laughter you're hearing, by the way, is Ben McNeely, <laughs> Betty Mac, back here live in the studio. Hey, so I got caught up in traffic in marathon traffic last week <laughs> and i was just like yeah nope we ain't, we ain't, yeah. We ain't getting there one needed a uh, miracle to to cross hillsborough street <laughs> during peak performance hours we were texting back and forth i was like jacob where are you he's like i'm here cup of joe <laughs> i said okay well i'm at home <laughs> I'm going to try and get there. <laughs> and you were on this side of town. Yeah, so that's what I, I went and did the show, but you had, you used up all the fuel for the Little Raleigh Radio Acorn. Yes. That's what we call our, our helicopter. Acorn one. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only only way to travel during race season <laughs> it really is. here in the city of Oaks. <laughs> it was down for repairs. <laughs> uh, turkey truck coming up. Uh, yeah, the trophy turkey truck. On Thanksgiving morning, and uh, that is a uh, annual benefit done to help out. Um, is it the... Uh, the, the it's healing transitions. He, healing transitions. Yeah, like not second chance transitions. Healing transitions. Healing transitions. Uh, I think it's. Uh, I guess it's both the men and women's uh, it campus. Is. Uh, the men's campus is over on Dix Park, which is you know across the street from Trophy Maywood, uh, and I think that's why uh, you know our, our 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 friends and former colleagues here at Little Raleigh Radio, Chris and Woody. Uh, unless they're the ones, that's why they. they and one week that. they are celebrating their ten, ten year anniversary. Years. Ten years of anniversary. serving local f- flavors of beer and pizza and conversation. I still have my original Trophy Brewing Company membership card. Nice. I still have it. I was there week one when they opened. Uh, when they opened on Morgan Street, the original, the the OG, the, the OG, OG. Lo- location. <laughs> and they're still serving slices out of there. Yes, they are. And I remember it's a the pretty pizza. building now. Oh, it's gorgeous. But yeah, I remember. I remember when they started uh, doing pizza. Uh, obviously, the beer was amazing. Um, and they've been. Um, they have. Uh, you know, they they've just done. They've just in the past ten years. They've just done some amazing things. Uh, they are. They are sort of. You know, pillars of our community, both in the uh, hospitality, the craft beer, the craft brewing, and now they're doing craft distilling and uh, with Young Hearts Distilling in the old Busy Bee Cafe on Wilmington Street. And so... I, and they, they definitely uh, imbue the, the Carnegie spirit of of um, the uh, industrial capitalism. Yes, they do. So, so kudos to them. Absolutely. And Congratulations, uh, fellas. Ten years and, and counting. I am I, a uh, big fan of Trophy Wife. Big fan of uh, Mort's Lager. I've spent many a weekend, weekends at Mort's. <laughs> well, be careful, buddy. Oh, I, listen, I know. <laughs> you don't have to tell me twice. But anyway. <laughs> 
But uh, well done. Well done, fellers. Yeah. Well done. Well done. And we look forward to seeing what you do next. So, uh... We took a field trip. We Lawn, did. Lawn Darts Radio took a field trip yep. yesterday. Rally on the road. I know, right? You know, the, the show is all about deliberate leisure. Yeah, the show is uh, your guide to deliberate leisure here in the city of Oaks for just regular people leading extraordinary lives. That's exactly. Doing extraordinary lives, doing really cool stuff, uh, and, 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 you know, making our little corner of the world better. But we took a field trip. Well, one of the great things about Raleigh, I mean, there's a lot of great things about Raleigh. Yes. Um, and one of the ones we underplay here, because we do love to celebrate what's happening around town, is the close proximity to the beach. Yeah, it's absolutely. <laughs> Why do you live there? Well, there's there's work and play, and uh, you can, you can day trip it. Two hours, you're at the beach. Four hours, you're at the mountains. That's the beauty of North Carolina anyway. And that's why we have all these people moving here, you know. But yeah, day tripping. So we, so we we loaded up in uh, we loaded up in uh, Acorn Two, Acorn Two, <laughs> loaded up in Acorn Two with a big old thermos of coffee. Hit the road early, and we headed down to Wilmington. We did. And uh, we, talking about deliberate leisure, uh, we, uh, as you know, we are big fans of radio, obviously. Uh, and so we were able to go out and visit with uh, uh, the Azalea. Let me see. Make sure I get this right. Uh, the Azalea Coast Amateur Radio Club, who was doing broadcasting from the Battleship North Carolina in Wilmington. Now, if you know me, I'm a nerd for the Battleship, and uh, so any chance I get to, any chance we get to, to Wilmington. Uh, I'm going to go by that. We're going to go to the battleship. But it was also pretty awesome that yesterday was uh, Veterans Day. And Battleship North Carolina, if you didn't know, is the state's memorial to those who served and died in World War II. The ship itself, battleship itself, is the was the most decorated uh, battleship. Uh, in World War II, 15 battle stars. It, it was in just about every major campaign in the Pacific, uh, the Pacific War. And it was decommissioned in 1947. It was uh, 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 fixing the Navy was fixing to scrap it. And there was a big campaign called Save Our Ship in the late 50s, early 60s, where um, school kids were would donate uh, uh, donate their their um, milk money and, uh, to to the campaign as well as getting corporate donors and whatnot. They raised about $250,000, $300,000 to buy the ship from the Navy, and in October of 61, uh, uh, towed it up the Cape Fear River and got it berthed right there, and, and that's how we saved uh, the USS North Carolina. Yeah, and there's still a lot of people running around that are, are very proud of their, their contribution to that. Oh, that my dad campaign. did. My yeah. dad grew up. He, he gave his milk money. He's very proud of it. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway... Uh, so we were down there, and not only were we there to um, uh, talk with the amateur radio folks, but it was Veterans Day, and we got a chance to talk to veterans as well. Yeah. And, yeah, so we're and gonna, they, they honored us with uh, some of their the, the highlights of, of their service and yeah. um, were, were comfortable um, sharing what it, what it meant to them for, for good and ill. So yeah, so we're going to play some music, but we're going to listen to uh, we're going to hear their stories a little bit later. Uh, in the show, and then in the second half of the hour, we're gonna we're gonna talk more about 
Amateur radio, ham radio. Yeah, and the guy came that came on right after um, after the intro song, kind of doing doing the call out there to all from the battleship. Uh, we'll hear from him in a little bit, but uh, that was the voice of Mister Mister Linwood. Yes, it was. Yeah. No, it was Wayne Helms. No, I'm pretty sure it was Linwood. Was it Linwood? No, you're right. I'm sorry. It was Wayne Helms. <laughs> yep. Hundred percent. You are a thousand percent correct. Linwood had the the red plaid shirt. Yeah, the red plaid shirt. Yeah. We'll and we'll hear his story because he's an Air Force veteran. We'll hear his story. But let uh, so yeah, we got some really good stuff today. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, I guess we'll get to some music and then uh, after on the other side, we'll hear some experiences from veterans. Of course, North Carolina is home to more than 750,000 veterans. Yes. I believe it is the largest uh, active service members uh, on the East Coast. Uh, no, uh, uh, actually in the country. Uh, Fort Liberty is the largest uh, base in the country. It's the largest military installation in the country. Right. And then you add in um, um, Seymour Johnson and yep. Camp Lejeune. Camp Lejeune. You're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Lejeune. It's French. The R is silent. <laughs> but yeah, you've got Camp Lejeune. You've got you've got Seymour Johnson Air Force Base. Uh, let's see, Pope Air Force Base was folded into Fort Liberty, which used to be called Fort Bragg, uh, but uh, that that was changed. And yes, you are correct that North Carolina is widely known as the most military friendly city or state in the country. Yeah. Uh, at least that is what the state likes to promote itself as. <laughs> <laughs> and we do have a lot of veterans here. Yeah, like I said, about 750,000 veterans uh, and, and growing. And uh, we were not alone uh, in going to uh, honor them by visiting the USS North Carolina yesterday. That's right. There were a lot of veterans out there, a lot of folks uh, that were uh, either veterans or uh, you know family members of veterans or family members of military active military, and uh, we got to talk. We got to talk to some some of the uh, some veterans out there, both uh, who have served who served their time like twenty years, and and, and other folks who served um, uh, you know in recent times. Uh, and it was fascinating. It really was. It was fascinating to hear their to the, hear their stories. And uh, uh, so we start off here with a fellow by the name of Chuck Gore. He's retired U.S. Navy and a volunteer with the battleship North Carolina. And then we'll hear from more uh, more veterans that we talked to while we were on our visit. Tell us about that. Tell us about your experience. How did you get in the Navy? Well, my father was career army. I graduated from high school in Mannheim, Germany when he was stationed over there and I came back to go to UNC Chapel Hill through Navy ROTC. Graduated in 1969 and went into active duty, onto active duty at that time. So I've been on five different ships, multiple shore duty assignments, uh, ended up spending 24 years in the Navy. Coincidentally, my last tour was at Duke University with the Navy ROTC unit. So even though I graduated from Carolina, I finished up at Duke. So that was a lot, that was a lot of fun. So I moved down here uh, in uh, uh, 2000 to become a teacher, a school teacher. And so I taught elementary school here for, for 10 years before I retired. And since then I've been volunteering uh, my services on the battleship. So, uh, tell us a little bit about your service. What what ships did uh, see you? You're wearing a USS Berkeley, DDG-15. 
that's a, uh, what kind of ship is that? It's a guided missile destroyer. And uh, tell us a little bit about your service. Well, uh, I was commissioned in 1969. I went out to the West Coast and joined the Berkeley uh, in Long Beach, California, where it was home ported. I spent three years on there. I started out as gunnery officer and then uh, became anti-submarine warfare officer. After that, I went to a minesweeper home ported in Guam where I was executive officer. Uh, we were involved in Operation End Sweep to clear the mines uh, out, out of the North Vietnamese waters that we had laid during the Vietnam conflict. So. Uh, we were involved in that for a while, and uh, luckily there were no casualties uh, for us. There were a few casualties, uh, mainly helicopter casualties, because we swept mines with ships and helicopters. <coughs> but anyway, from there I went to a destroyer in San Diego, where I was operations officer on the George K. McKenzie, uh, Fram, Fram 1 destroyer. I went to Monterey, California. Navy paid for my uh, master's degree in national security affairs. So from there, I went to um, uh, uh, Naples, Italy, where I was on the Commander-in-Chief Southern Region NATO Forces staff in an intelligence billet. From there, I went to, uh, if this is too long-winded, let me no, know. No, this is good. From, from there, I great. went to an amphibious assault ship, the USS Inchon in oh, wow. Norfolk, where I was navigator uh -huh. for uh, two years. Um, and then I went to um, shore duty in uh, Norfolk uh, at the uh, Sink Lamp Fleet, uh, Fleet Intelligence Center. And from there, I went to um, uh, back to uh, Norfolk to the USS John King, another guided missile destroyer where I was executive officer. Mm. And I went ashore after that to Anti-Submarine Warfare Training Center in uh, Norfolk, Virginia for a few years and then ended up at Duke where I uh, finished out my career there at the Navy ROTC unit. So that's a long-winded explanation of 24 <laughs> years. What, what does your service mean to you? Well, it, you know, looking back on it, when I did it, it really, I just thought I was doing a job. Um, and back in those days in the Vietnam era, veterans were not really that honored. Um, so nowadays, there's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more uh, appreciation, I feel like, for veterans. And I deeply appreciate that for my generation and for generations that came past me. And so it means a lot when people uh, appreciate your service and sacrifice and honor veterans. That, that means a lot. So thank you for honoring me today. Well, I appreciate you uh, telling, me, telling us your story. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And have a good day on the battleship. You too. We may see you up there. <laughs> yep. Uh, can I get your name first? Linwood Todd. Linwood. And uh, you are, your hat says Air Force veteran. That's right. And tell us about your service. I joined the service in 1968 because things were getting hot and heavy in Vietnam and I knew Uncle Sam's going to send me a greeting. So I said, let me go down there and talk to the recruiter. This was the 28th of February of 68. And he said, no problem. We'll get you signed up. We'll put you in on a 120-day delayed enlistment. So the 28th of May, I went in. But in between, I got that greetings from Uncle Sam. So you got the draft notice. I got the draft notice. So I contacted him. I said, Here's what I got in the mail. He said, don't worry about it. Go do your physical, and we'll take care of the paperwork. I said, make sure you do. Because they were looking at Army and Marines, and I said, I'm not going there. So 28th of uh, May, or yeah, May, I went in service, went and 
to basic training in Texas. Then I went to uh, Rantoul, Illinois for my basic uh, school. And from there I went to Naha, Okinawa. From there I spent 211 days in Southeast Asia playing the real game, but I was only temporary duty on each time. Uh, come back, went to uh, Del Rio, Texas, left there. I came to North Carolina. 13 months later, I was headed back across the pond. So uh, it, it was just to be, to go. Yeah. Uh, came back, got married, grabbed my wife, and up to the upper peninsula of Michigan I went. Cold, up to 150 inches of snow a year. We uh, came back down to Rantoul, Illinois, to the training center. Was an instructor there for about five years and got a, another control tour down to Florida. From Florida, I, I went to uh, Germany with the family. And from Germany, I came back to Goldsboro, North Carolina and retired in 1994. So you, you served at Seymour Johnson? I did. That's where I retired. And, and what was your job? What did you do in the Air Force? Well, if, you, if you're looking at the flight line and you see all these aircraft out there and all this little equipment that's around it, support equipment, they, uh, they had a fancy name for it called Aerospace Ground Equipment or AGE. That's what I did. I either worked on it or taught it or was a supervisor in those later years. But uh, at wherever the aircraft went, we went. They had to have that to, you know, get it started and make it fly. So what, what type of air aircraft were you working on? Uh, I started off with uh, C-130s and then, uh, let's see, went to C-130s. Um, most of my career has been with the C-130s. There was some, uh, when I was in Germany, I was with the RF-4Cs. They're the guys that fly around and take pictures. And when I came back to uh, Goldsboro, it was the F-15s. F-15 Strike Eagles? That's right. Holy cow, but that was fun. <laughs> yeah, they were pretty good. Uh, we uh, we took a trip to the desert at, at uh, uh, the second half of the, the desert. Uh, not desert storm, but desert... Shield? Shield, yeah, yeah. thank you, thank you. And uh, we were flying sorties out of that. And about the time I got ready to retire, uh, they had reduced the number of uh, slots in the Air Force. They were bringing the, the force down, and we were flying as many sorties as uh, we had when we had a full complement. And uh, I kind of looked forward to getting out, but I tell you, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. 26 years, had all the fun I could stand. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about your experience in Southeast Asia. What did you do there? Uh, well, it's wherever you're at, you, you do the same thing. Uh, we started off in, uh, they were like 90-day uh, deployments, and uh, we worked on the equipment there that supported the aircraft. Tonsonut, right outside of Saigon, was one base. There was Cameron Bay in uh, Vietnam, and then there was uh, Ubon, Thailand, and Utapau, Thailand, all doing the same, same type of work that uh, our career, my career field. Yeah. Yeah. What, is, um, what does your service mean to you? I wouldn't trade it for anything. You know, you, you look around now and everybody's complaining about this, that, or the other, but basically when I went in, you, you went in. <laughs> Either you got drafted or you went in voluntarily. But uh, I oftentimes think that maybe possible that uh, some of the 
draft, if you will, a selective system would help some of the younger guys that are basically getting in trouble. You know, back in my day, <laughs> you had two choices. You can either go to jail or you can go join the military. Of course, I don't, I don't know that I'd want to send a lot of folks that are troublemakers, if you will, uh, to the military. But it was a, a pleasant, sometimes busy career. And uh, got to see a lot of places. I have two uh, boys that both have families now. And when they uh, were growing up, we'd spend the night in, in medieval castles in Germany. Wow. And, you know, you just don't, people don't understand how the other people live in some different parts of the world. And it's uh, quite enlightening. They've been places that their friends would never even think about. Can I get your name? Kristen Wilkerson. And uh, tell us about your service. Um, I served in the United States Marine Corps from 2012 to 2016. Um, I, I served as an air traffic controller. Um, I went to boot camp in uh, Paris Island and um, was in Pensacola for my A school for air traffic control school and, and then was stationed in Miramar for the rest of my service. Um, and. Uh, what made you decide to join the Marines? That's a good question. Um, my dad was in the Army, my brother was in the National Guard, so I don't know, maybe I just had to one-up them or something. <laughs> but, um, the few, the proud. Yeah. I, w I figured if I was going to go in the military, I wanted to go all the way, so <laughs> get a challenge, you know? Yeah. So, and it definitely was, but also like the best thing I ever did for myself, truly. Why is that? Uh, it just opened up tons of doors for me, and it gave me the discipline to really do well in school when I got out. Um, I used my GI Bill to go uh, to dental school and become a uh, dental hygienist. Um, so now I'm working as that, and there's no way I would have gotten through like organic chem and micro and all that without the discipline that the Marine Corps gave me. <laughs> so, because I was a crap student in high school. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about your service. Um, well, I, I got really close with the guys in my unit. Um, you know, we would, we were working days, nights, days, nights. Um, and so often PT would be at like three or four in the morning and then we would go run like an eight mile beach run or something with like a chain on our shoulder or something crazy, you know, or, or ammo can passes back. And, um, but we would do crazy PT and then we would, uh, you know, go to work and we, we were either up in the tower or in the radar room. Um, but we were always training and always learning, so lots of studying. Uh, the, the air traffic control Bible is the 7110, but um, we'd just be having our, our heads in the books all day long. But um, I don't know, it was also kind of crazy just like being surrounded by the same guys like every single day in a small radar room. So it was kind of like being stuck in a suburban going cross country with your family. <laughs> and like the civilian DODs were kind of like the dad that would pull over and be like, all right, everybody get the fuck out of the radar room. Like, <laughs> Like, if you're not on position, get the hell out. Oh, but it was, I mean, so, you know, we were we were a mess, but we all we all loved each other. We all had each other's backs. And, um, I mean, my we've all stayed close ever since, too. So it's cool. And you say you're, you do a reunion here uh, with your old buddies. Is that correct? Uh, so last year we did a reunion in Texas. Um, this year we did it in Wilmington, North Carolina, and they wanted to come see the battleship. So... Um, and then next year we're trying to do it in Vegas. So, nice. <laughs> so met Veterans Day, Marine Corps birthday, hoorah. So. I was gonna say happy birthday, Marines. Thanks, thanks, yeah. <laughs> um, what does your service mean to you? Um, 
Honestly, some of my like most intensely proud moments when I was serving was when we were doing drill. And um, like during my corporal's course graduation, I was pregnant with my son. So I, was, I had a six month pregnant belly, but we all had our NCO swords that we had just earned and were like marching down through a valley towards graduation and just like, oh, Adelaide, oh, and you know, like all the boots pounding and um, the echoes and just like the, the goosebumps that you hear like, you know, those things, like, you just feel the, the goosebumps crawling on your skin. And I always loved colors, too. Like, colors would play. And I don't know, some people would run to get inside before colors would play. And I, I always loved hearing it echo over the hills. And it definitely gives you that, like, sense of patriotism that you're, like, a part of something bigger and that you, you know, you are sacrificing your, your time and your freedom and your, uh, <laughs> you know, your time with your family. But um, it's, like, the most incredible thing to be a part of. And you know, you're all going through the shit together, so it's like you, you become closer than you've ever imagined with, you know, your brothers and sisters in the military. Would you recommend it for anyone who is just interested or maybe looking for a place in their, you know, looking for their place in the world? I mean, honestly, like, I feel like it, it strips away any sense of entitlement that you have and... Um, it gets you to stop thinking about like just yourself. It gets you to think about the you know the person to your left or your right and like sacrificing for them and and just like having their backs above everything else. And so yeah, absolutely. I mean, it it definitely it gives you drive. It gives you discipline and it gives you a family. So it's it's a rad experience and it definitely builds you into who you who you are today. You know, but. Family. Yeah, these are my these are my guys. These are your guys. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Can I get your name? Russell Mackey. And we're Sergeant in the Marines. Sergeant Marines, are you still in? No, no. Out. We all got out about the same time. And what's your name? Uh, Sergeant Al Helena, USMC. They uh, call me Al. They <laughs> what? They call me Al. The last name. <laughs> this fits perfectly. Uh, Sergeant Logan Malone, uh, USMC. And uh, all y'all served together, is that correct? Yes, yeah. sir. Uh, what did y'all do? Air traffic control. We're at uh, Marine Corps Air Station, Miramar, San Diego. Fantastic. Why did you decide to join uh, the Marines? I joined because I think everybody should do some type of civic service in their life, either military, working for city government, just working for the people because you're not going to see that anywhere else. A different view on life. Why'd you join? I thought about serving for a while, just kind of give back. And uh, college wasn't looking like a good idea. I was like, I don't know what I want to do. I just uh, joined the Marines. They're the best. <laughs> well, I just hopped up on that train. And what about you? Uh, I'm from a small town, so. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Hardin, Illinois. It's a very small town of like, I, I graduated with 46 people. Uh, and the recruiter saw that. And he took full advantage of me wanting to get out of that place. <laughs> Gave me every little bit of sweet talk that uh, I could have hoped for, and it just caught my eye. Because the first San Diego, though, San Diego, and you know what? Travel was like one of the big things that I wanted to do whenever I got out. So um, I guess I got to San Diego and kind of stayed there for a bit. But well, I did a little bit of traveling while I was in. Had a deployment down to Peru. That was pretty cool. Um, rode on a nice little ship, something like this. We had about, what, a thousand people on our ship? Or two thousand? Twelve hundred? Yeah. We had 
400 Marines, and then I think somewhere between like 600 to 1,000 sailors. Something like that. What kind of ship was it? What? Uh, it was the USS Somerset, um, an LPD gotcha. class ship. Yeah. Based off of uh, Somerset County, where Flight 93 went down. So it was pretty much a big memorial for Flight 93 and 9/11, and it was it was really humble just being on the ship. Walk up the ramp, and you look behind you, and you see like the whole Pentagon with the two twin towers in between it. There, that's kind of like their logo for the ship, and their their motto, let's roll, right above it. There's a good story behind that one, but I recommend looking into that. Couldn't give you as good of details, I'm <laughs> sure, as some other people could. Oh. Or as Google. Yeah. Google. I never went on an LPD, so uh, he, he got that. He got a deployment to Peru, being with the de- uh, detachment. I stayed on station the entire time. Yeah. I think we all stayed yeah, on station the, the entire time. Yeah, we ran it on station. They didn't rotate at us like they were supposed to. We had a lot of guys come from Japan, go to Japan, but like most of us got to Miramar and that was it. Mm. So you pretty much stayed stateside. Yeah. Mm. Still though, that was fine, wasn't it? Was yeah. it fun? Oh, oh, we got stationed yeah. in San Diego. Yeah. Great time. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't complaining at all. You can't beat that. Yeah. Was, <laughs> all of us hooligans running around. We caused chaos for sure. Caught a space aid of Hawaii, and that was that was a, a ride. <laughs> All the trips to Arizona. Yeah, it was a five-hour drive to Vegas, too. Vegas. And we had one guy that was real good at poker, so he would get comped at the Luxor. So we'd all end up piling into this room in the Luxor and, like, going out. Had a place to crash, yeah. It was good times. It was good times. Los Angeles trips. Anywhere up in Northern California. Oh, yeah. San Diego is just a good central hub to be stationed at. Yeah, a lot of military bases there, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me ask you, what, what does your service mean to you? No pressure. <laughs> uh, I'm really glad I joined. Would do it again, but knowing what to expect would make it a much harder decision to do again. But I still think I would do it. Um, I enjoyed my time in, but when I got out, it was like... I don't want anything to do with the Marine Corps anymore. I'm done, <laughs> I'm free. And now it's been seven years, eight years since we got out and it's coming back on. I'm just really glad I did it. It was not something I could have done again in a different time frame. It was definitely needed to do that when I was in my 20s and had the time to do it because yeah, it's, it's a different life decision I mean, we, I know people who have joined a lot or, older than I did, and a lot of people join when they're 18, but I had a great time doing it. What about you? Uh, it was good to, you know, like I was saying, to kind of give back and uh, just kind of be part of, like, you know, the camaraderie, the big team, and uh, I was probably the first one. There. Yeah. yeah. Actually, we ended up being the uh, same boot camp battalion, we'd, uh, or platoon. We didn't even remember it till we're talking about the same guy. We had this guy, was was he four foot eight, four nine on the waiver? And they stuffed him in one of the main packs, and we're talking about this, this on the range. I'm like, wait a minute, because yeah. I remember he got body snatched during like team week, so we're all kind of cleaning different parts of the base, and I'm in the squad bay cleaning the rifles, and this cat comes barging through the door, this just hats chasing after him, screaming. And the, they, uh, 
drill instructor's like, recruit, get in the office. I sir! And slam, and he'd shoot out oh, the yeah. other drill instructors. Running in fear. And then he comes back just drenched in sweat. And I also remember at the very end of boot camp, they asked who, like, didn't get snatched, and you were one of, what, like, three people who raised their hands? Yeah, you skated. You went under the radar. With a name like that. Once I found out, it was kind of hard, but uh, stayed low. All the crazy stories from boot camp, it's like, of course, when you get together, you start telling them, but, like, I feel like we had equally as crazy stories from, like, being up in the control tower, like, Sergeant Linder, like, being dared to eat, like, three pounds of cheese, and just, like, (laughs) and him being like, I'll get you three pounds of cheese. That'll that'll stop you up. Or, like, or the... Spicy food challenges and yeah. or like, there was like three dozen hard-boiled eggs. Like the DOD's wife, like hard-boiled all these eggs and like peeled them for him. And so he was like sitting there trying to eat three dozen hard-boiled eggs. Did not end well, but and he outranked us. So guess who got to clean the tower? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and all this while you're trying to direct tra- air traffic, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Very responsible. Or of course. <laughs> very late at night when we're waiting on like one plane to come back at uh, 2 a.m. Yeah. And yeah, the late night boredom shenanigans. We gotta stay here. Everything's gotta stay open. But um, yeah, what does your service mean to you? Uh, let's see. It is. I'm very thankful for my service because it led me to a lot of people that I've been able to meet and come to know in my life that um, I need to reach out to a lot more. I'll be honest too, but um, <laughs> not terrible with that as far as it comes to a person. But every veteran will tell you, every active duty person will tell you that the suck sucks, um, especially while you're going through it. But that's always going to be the most memorable moments whenever you look back after your service, no matter whether you did five years or 20 years, you're going to look back on it and be thankful for the people that were there with you to embrace the suck. Because that's the kind of experience, the kind of bonding that really makes the camaraderie what it is. Um, Just being in the show together and being able to work your way through it as a team, get out on the other side, get back to the barracks and then just pass out or do whatever your usual nightly routine is um, if you have that luxury. Some people, you know, their barracks are a tent pitched up in the middle of the woods and you got your battle buddy to sleep with, keeping things nice and warm, get your rifles between you. That place, that sucks too, but uh, again, it's going to make for awesome stories whenever you uh, get out and are looking back on these moments. You're like, God. Sometimes I miss that foxhole. <laughs> and a lot of things were like, man, that sucked at the time, but that was awesome in the long run. <laughs> Can I get your name? Name is uh, Ken Castile. And uh, you are a veteran. I am. I uh, served 23 years in the U.S. Navy. I retired in 1995 as a Chief Warrant Officer Three. And what was your rate? What was your job? My job was personnel. Um, I worked uh, in personnel all my career. Uh, I was enlisted, uh, and at 16 years, I got—I was a senior chief petty officer. I got commissioned to warrant officer, and uh, I had commissioned tours as personnel officer, admin officer, and admin security officer before I retired. And were you uh, ever on uh, uh, sea duty? Yes, uh, my first ship. Uh, Right out of uh, basic and A school, I went to a ship out of San Diego, and uh, we went on a deployment, and we went to Hawaii, Guam, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, the Philippines, and that's when I knew that the Navy was for me because I love to travel. 
That's fantastic. Now, did you? Uh, what era did you serve in? What, were you in a? Uh, were you in any conflict? I uh, joined right at the end of the Vietnam War. We uh, spent some time off the coast of Vietnam in the South China Sea. Uh, and that was just for a deployment, and we came back to the States. And then later on, um, I was involved in some operations out of Charleston, but uh, I was involved in Desert Storm uh, when I was on board a ship out of Norfolk. And we went, and I was the uh, passenger and mail coordinator for the Red Sea Battle Group when uh, uh, the ships were operating in the Red Sea during Desert Storm. What was that like? That was uh, quite a kind of hectic. Uh, if you ever saw any of the news footage, uh, they had pallets that were just loaded with mail and boxes and, and, and parcels to go to the ships. So our job was basically to receive the uh, mail and passengers and parcels in Hergada, Egypt, separate everything into different pallets so the different helicopters could bring it out to the different ships or back to the aircraft carrier that was operating in the Red Sea. Why did you join the Navy? Um, I was bored with school. Um, I lived five blocks away from campus. I lived with my parents and uh, it was spring semester and I was just kind of ready to do something else. And my fraternity brother said, you need to join the Navy Reserve like us for two years. I thought I was going to do it for two years and come home and go back to school. They would pay for the school. But like I said, I got on board a ship. We went on deployment. We did all that traveling. And since then, you know, having traveled to the Mediterranean, Africa, all around South America, the Caribbean, uh, the Persian Gulf, uh, you know, some of the experiences that I've had, uh, you know, it's been great. When where did you grow up? I grew up in South Louisiana in Cajun country. And uh, my father always said there wasn't much to come back to there. And uh, the Navy was a, a good way of life. So I stuck with it. And what does your service mean to you? It means a lot. Uh, you know, there's a lot of times when we think about what we can do for our country and uh, serving in the military in one way or another in any branch of the service, uh, whatever uh, interest you might have, that's the, uh, the way we give back to our, our, our citizenship, our freedoms. Well, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. All right. Quite welcome. Thank yep. you. Yep. So that was, uh, the, that was, uh, let's see, that was uh, King Castile and Russell Mackey, Al, uh, uh, Al Halimna, um, Logan Malone, Christian Wilkinson, Linwood Todd, and Chuck Gore, all veterans of the U.S. Uh, Armed Forces that we talked to uh, at the Battleship North Carolina. It was a, it was a lot of fun, uh, and, and they were all, you know, willing and 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 uh enthusiastic about telling their story um and i think a lot of folks a lot of veterans especially veterans of the global war on terror um they they're they've grown tired of the phrase thank you for your service uh and they and i think most veterans just want people to ask them and to ask them about their experience and to listen uh, and I think that's um, that that's a a, a more um, I think that's more thoughtful uh, way to to um, appreciate those who have served us. Yeah. I mean, I, I was I was pleasantly surprised with how honest and open everybody was, and and their willingness to talk about it. I mean, I think that it's. Um, Providing as much understanding as you can is probably the best way to honor um, anybody that has dedicated part of their life um, to something that they perceive greater than themselves. Yeah. And so I appreciate them 
sharing their experiences with us and trying to keep keep it personal and we'll also um you know trying to demonstrate what motivates them yeah absolutely night uh a space that's relatively free of sass uh and a lot of uh endearing uh personality still um is amateur radio amateur radio amateur amateur radio amateur radio and uh you're hamming it up buddy when we contacted the battleship to say if we could you know have permission to go down there and record uh they said you have picked a perfect day to come yes because we are hosting the wilmington azalea amateur radio club yes uh which is i want to tell you so much about it but i think we got somebody better to tell us about it yes we do um we have we were dead center middle of the battleship Right, um, like the the like, there was a plaque and everything that says this is the specific center point. This is the compass. This is where you will always find your way. Uh, where we met, um, folks from the Azalea Ham Radio Club. Hey, my name is Justin Cox. I am a amateur radio operator with the Azalea Amateur Radio Club. My call sign is WI4EC for anybody that y'all might have for listeners that are also amateur radio operators. Uh, and I'm a member of the Azalea Coast Amateur Radio op- Radio Club, and we're fortunate, and we get to operate on board the Battleship North Carolina frequently. That's fascinating. How did you get into uh, amateur radio? Uh, about 20 years ago, I was interested in the hobby. And after the interest was there, I was busy, caught up in life, uh, younger male, recently married, had a lot going on. Uh, but the fascination of, you know, this is pre-Google and smartphone days, So, but the interest of people could talk to other places just by picking a random frequency. And the airwaves, and, you know, I could assi- the best I could assimilate it to was an AM FM radio station and how they broadcast it a whole lot of power. But if you just turn the dial, there's a way to talk. So that kind of fascinated me. Um, I went through life, had some kids, had a job, retired. And I was like, you know, I'm bored. I'm bored. One of my best friends lives in South Carolina. We still talk three or four times a week to this day. And uh, we were joking around one day, and we're both kind of all over the place with our hobbies. You know, it's really almost eclectic with the stuff we get into. But uh, we were hanging out one day. We were actually going to a comedy show in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, he said, man, you're never going to believe what I did last month. And I said, what's that? He said, I got licensed as an amateur radio operator. And I was like, man, you got to be kidding me. And I ran out to my truck in his driveway, and I still had the manual in the Amazon package for the first for the first class of license and I also had a radio that is kind of a the best starter radio I think you, that you could buy uh, so from there it just flourished and uh, I found uh, luckily in Wilmington North Carolina we have several ham radio clubs within 30 minute drive of us and I started googling and the battleship lured me into the Azalea Coast Amateur Radio Club and here I am how um as you said, in this age of Google and cell phones and, and everything, what is still the draw of amateur radio? Well, the initial draw for me was preparedness. Um, I'm not a prepper. I wouldn't nearly go that far. Uh, but my previous life and my career, I retired from the fire department, and 
having communications, I realized after Hurricane Florence, it was the first time in my career I was able to evacuate. I was done, no longer at work, massive hurricane barreling towards us. And when it upgraded overnight, it was almost kind of like Katrina. We knew it was going to be a big one. We knew it was going to be a big one. And then overnight it developed into a category four. I was able to evacuate. And the first time in my adult life, I, was, I said, I can leave town. We got stuck out of town, like most of everybody else that evacuated Wilmington. We fought floods, flooded highways, collapsed highways, trying to get back. And I realized we're one generator running out of fuel from not having any communication to the outside world. Trees fell on our power lines going into our neighborhood. Nobody had internet at the house. Nobody had, so if the closest cell tower went down, nobody can talk. And that's kind of where I, was reinvigorated in the ham radio. So for me, it was alternate forms of communication. And as I learned more, because of a local club, I learned about the other things that are absolutely fascinating. You can Google another country all you want. You could Google, I don't know, Google a random phone book from Japan, and you can probably find somebody's phone number in Japan. But if you call them, you might not talk to them. Well, with amateur radio, you want to talk to Japan, there's websites to tie into modern technology that can tell you whether or not Japan's talking on the air, or you can just try and find them. And if they're there, you can communicate. And that is just beyond fascinating that without a phone, and a, or which is essentially a mini computer in your pocket, I can still talk to some, anybody across the globe. What's the farthest around the globe you've talked to somebody? Actually, the first time I operated from the battleship North Carolina, I talked to Japan. Oh, wow. The very first time, it was October 6th of last year. I remember the date. Um, it was absolutely phenomenal. We were operating um, in Radio Room 2, which is essentially the, trans the transmitting room of the ship. And uh, I brought my own little radio in, and I was having a great day. And next thing you know, this... A JA call sign came in and everybody in the room lit up and I was brand new it was my first time playing radio on big boy radios and I didn't understand the difference and I kept pecking away and uh, about 20 minutes later when I was done everybody was just yelling at me that I got to talk to Japan and it was absolutely amazing <laughs> so I, I've been fortunate I've talked to Japan I've talked to a lot of South South African countries, a lot of South American countries, a lot of European countries, a lot of Asian contacts. Um, and that's mixing the different modes because amateur radio or ham radio is also not only talking. You can use Morse code, which in our world is known as CW. And then there's a lot of digital modes. So you actually interface your radio with a computer and you can do everything from send written messages like an email all the way to just exchanging reports of, hey, I hear you this well, and you send a corresponding report of you hear me this well. And in all honesty, it sounds like an old modem or fax machine. If you ever picked up that phone line, it sounds like the old dial-up modems from the late 90s. Uh, but it's amazing. Have you ever talked to the space station? I have not talked to anybody on the space station yet. But the space station operates what's called a repeater. So you can talk into the space station on a frequency. And then on an alternate frequency, the space station takes 
your signal and bounces it back to Earth, and then you can talk to somebody else. And I actually talked to a gentleman in, Ohio, in uh, excuse me, New York, hmm, December last year. Uh, so that was pretty cool. Does the space station fly under the ion sphere, or does it? Does it? Do you actually have to make sure that conditions are right to go above it? Yep. And then yeah, so it actually, and that's kind of the what's odd about amateur radio is the bands act differently in the atmosphere. And different atmospheric conditions will actually affect individual bands. Like during the, during the day, the initial layers, the bottom layers of the atmosphere are really dense. So a lot of your, a lot of your signal can't penetrate so that you can get, as we call it, a long skip. So it's very short, it gets absorbed in the atmosphere, and your cone of dissemination becomes smaller. Uh, other frequencies can penetrate that and go all the way into the troposphere and ionosphere, and they can actually reflect back to Earth. Uh, and those are typically your higher frequencies, which are lower bands. The 10 meter, 12 meter, 15 meter bands, which are 21 megahertz signals on up. Um, so how are y'all transmitting from the battleship? Because we are like, this is like deck four. <laughs> We're pretty deep in the bowels of, of the battleship here. Are y'all tied into an antenna or, or what? We are. So the battleship North Carolina is a private museum ship. It's a state historical site with all private funding done through donations and ticket sales. We're the only museum ship that is organized that way. Um, we also have a couple of charities established through the battleship that help. And one of the great things that all of those organizations have bought into is actually helping to support amateur radio. And the way they do that directly for us, not only in allowing us to be here, but they help maintain the original antennas on the ship. And that is battleship staff. That they also help maintain the original wiring for the antennas. And inside of the respective radio rooms, we have modern radios that we put in place with modern 110-volt normal household outlets that we turn our power supplies and then connect our radios to. So we're using modern radio or transceivers because they transmit and receive, and we're talking on 1930s and 40s technology antennas. It's amazing. Incredible. And, and what's the range for that? Uh, so far, Japan. <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, you, Duh, Benny Mac. <laughs> you, you have to imagine uh, when everything was established in 39, all through the ship's operational period through World War II in the Pacific Theater, uh, everything was running in Morse code. Um, and the range was truly endless. Uh, because Morse code is uses so finite amount of signal that all of the power you can generate is going through the point of the pencil rather than a two, rather than a two by six. Instead of being really broad and trying to push a beach ball, we're trying to push a pen tack. So you can the Morse code they they were able to talk truly globally. Do you do you know where they're things they had to do to keep their messages from being intercepted i do so one of the neat things was the ship multiple layers right because they didn't different clearance levels and staff so what's really cool on the receiver end when the 
radio personnel on board the ship were receiving code. It was all Morse code and it came in five randomized letters. So instead of being a word that we would associate as a word, they would receive Morse code of J, B, X, 2, Y, and then another set of five letters, and then another set of five letters, and then another set of five letters, endless. And that's all they did for their entire period. And those five letters were actually used for encryption. And that was our version of the Enigma. It was actually a never broken to our knowledge. Um, and when we would transmit to send signals from U.S. craft, we would transmit in those same five randomized letter increments. So if somebody intercepted the signal, they were hearing five randomized letters that meant no words, and unless you had the code to break it, they meant nothing. So we actually have on board the ship, there's still actually two of our version of the Enigma machines. Oh, wow. Now yep. that's cool. That's really cool. So um, how could someone, uh, if they wanted to get involved in ham radio, amateur radio, how, how could they get involved? Obviously, there's a licensing uh, aspect to it. Um, but if someone's interested, how, how, what do you do? 2023 is a beautiful year, right? Like, hallelujah, we've got technology. You can Google your local area for amateur radio clubs. And a lot of clubs have testing in-house because, like you said, there is a, lic a licensing thing with amateur radio. So it's not some it's similar, but not a, not identical to going to Walmart and grabbing a set of handy talkies. Uh, you actually have to get a license to operate in these classes, and we have three classes of license currently. Um, so you can go to the arrl.org's website. Um, and that is the Amateur Radio Relay League. And that's kind of like the, not the governing body, but it's a volunteer organization that helps amateur radio. Uh, and they have a lot of resources to find testing sources and online classes to help you figure out where you want to go. And you can even search amateur clubs in your region. Um, and a Google search for amateur clubs in your region is a great place to start. I know our club, uh, we test internally. We test everybody, but our staff, uh, our volunteers inside of us, we test. They're called uh, volunteer examiners. And we test through, our testing is accredited through the ARRL. Um, and it's just the accrediting agency. There's several. Uh, but once you take the test and you pass the test, the first test is technician, the second test is general, and the third test is an amateur extra, and that's the top. It gives you the most frequencies you can operate on, um, and from once you get your test and your license, you can go away and go and have fun. Does the Azalea Club do any local outreach to bring people into the hobby? We do. So events like today, when we're operating on the Battleship North Carolina for Veterans Day, we actually post on our Facebook page um, to try and bring in other people from. We actually, uh, this morning, uh, we had a fellow actually from Raleigh, and he was a guest operator. Um, we host guest operators uh, pretty frequently on board the ship. You can go to the Azalea Coast Amateur Radio Club's website, request to come to Wilmington, and we'll let you play on the radio on board the ship all you want. Um, and then we do several other activations throughout the year where we actually activate from public parks and public facilities to try and bring in masses of people 
That way they can see what it is, they can look, they can touch, they can feel. I don't know about y'all, I can read it on a book all day long. I can watch a YouTube video on it, but it doesn't quite click until I can put my hands on it. So we try and make ourselves as available as possible to the public eye so that we can have people that might be interested but have never seen it or heard it before, they can come out and try it. And that way they're not out of pocket anything but gas money. That's pretty cool. Do you still have to learn Morse code to get your license? You do not have to learn Morse code any longer. They did away with the code requirement in the 90s. Um, some of the older hams, they refer to the younger generation as no code hams. <laughs> Uh, and that's because we didn't have to learn Morse code. Yeah, I'm cursive. <laughs> right. That's, it was kind of like the North Carolina school curriculum from four years ago when cursive was elusive. And you'd have a ninth, you'd have a ninth, ninth grade child look at cursive like they was Arabic. You know, what is this? So, but yeah, you can choose to do Morse code if you want to. Uh, I personally am currently learning it. I'm not quite 100% proficient in it yet. Uh, I couldn't even pass the testing standards now to test at my license class, but I'm hoping to get there by the end of the year. That's awesome. Fantastic. Um, and then just with the Being Veterans Day, um, have you ever had any personal experience of seeing veterans um, use ham radio to keep connections active or to kind of recreate something that they love during their time of service once they come home? We certainly have. We actually have several of our members are veterans. Uh, one of them I think you all have already met today. Uh, but they often will enjoy, especially coming on the ship, we have a bunch of Navy guys and uh, former Navy personnel will come on board and they love using the radio. And even better are the, mm, the older generation that still use Morse code as their primary means of communication. They light up when we give them the chance to work Morse code from the battleship. So it's pretty neat. That is cool, that's cool. Justin, what's your YouTube channel? <laughs> if anybody would like to keep up with uh, me, Justin Cokes, uh, WI4EC, you can find me on YouTube and Instagram under Blackbeards Radio. I currently uh, posted a video today. I try and do at least one video a week involving ham radio. CQ, CQ, November India 4, Bravo Kilo. November India 4, Bravo Kilo, Spatial Event Station. USS North Carolina for Veterans Day. So that was uh, a little, a uh, little taste, a little, uh, a little look peek into the world of amateur radio, which is still a thing. It's a it's a very active thing, and I love how much the technology has grown. Yeah, he alluded to it a little bit, but you can send digital data packets back and forth now. Yeah, with amateur radio, um, and you know, um, a lot of amateur radio is about bouncing things off the ion sphere, which is where electrons get stuck in Earth's atmosphere. Yeah, but I was fascinated to find out that uh, you know I knew we could connect to like the anything line of sight, like the International Space Station, but the fact that they're able to piggyback now also off of terrestrial radio stations but now they can do line of sight to satellites and piggyback yeah. off of them to reach other places and they're bound, the yeah, ba yeah. bouncing signals so uh, and as yeah. he said as he said that the 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 space station acts as a repeater so you're sending a signal up it bounces back down to earth yeah it's just so cool and if you're in raleigh and you want to get connected to ham radio uh, we'd recommend you look up our buddy john Breyer, yeah. uh, space comms uh, that is his youtube channel uh, and he has a, a lot of enthusiasm uh, for the hobby and helping other people get started with it. 
very cool. And like I said, this is this is what we do. It's all about deliberate leisure here uh, on Lawn Darts Radio. So, as part of our uh, little road trip, our field trip down to Wilmington, we were that close. We were that close. We were that close. We may as well gone to the beach. And uh, I mean that that's a that's a that's a that was a really cool thing. You know, it was well, it was cold. It was rainy. But a lot of times we don't get down there, even though it's that close. A lot of folks we just don't we just don't go. You don't make time. You don't make time to do it. Uh, and it's been a while. It had been a while for you. Yeah, no, I hadn't been to the ocean since I believe 2018. I think it had been right at right at five years when I last time I went down to Surf City. Yeah, yeah. What so, was it like for you? Uh, same as always to go down there. You know. Uh, you know the water is healing. It's it's so cathartic that you can't help, or at least I can't, and I think a lot of folks can relate. Can't help but just just feel happy. Um, there's a scientist named Nicholas Wallace that um, recently proved that something with the effect of where the where the blue and the green, uh, the blue sky mm-hmm. and the green of the water kind yeah. of meet the horizon. The way our eyes focus, there's like natural dopamine that gets released when you're doing that. Oh. Um, and then your your blood pressure um, kind of tries to sync with the rhythm of the waves coming in and out. So uh, there's these external stimuli that are giving you meditative calm without you even realizing it. Um, and just also associate the uh, the memories, uh, uh, the ocean with a lot of good memories of uh, some time that I got to spend with my grandmother. Uh, and just the fact that um, I'm not very comfortable on land. Uh, nav- navigating this this world sometimes can be a little bit uh, difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, just always associate being in the water with a lot more control of my physical movements. Um, so, uh, he healing and, and joy is what I think of with the ocean. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. and the water was like really warm yesterday. I was I was I was expecting it to be like. That I was gonna like put my toes in and and run out screaming about how cold it was and everything, but uh, compared to the air outside, the water was very warm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was pretty chilly and it was rainy, uh, but you know, it was a rainy day at the beach is still a day at the beach. We got to get you a fishing pole. Yeah, I got to get a fishing pole and and you know get down to Johnny Mercer Pier and uh, and throw out a line or two. You know, get yourself some supper. Exactly. So, uh, because so uh, we're gonna leave you with a little uh, with a little ocean sounds here that I took while we were standing out there at Riceville Beach. This is your little uh, moment of zen, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.
Do what? So at least we can come out to see the stars. Yeah. <laughs> Hey friends, if you like Lawn Darts Radio, you can help keep us going by donating to Little Raleigh Radio. Your contribution will help us train community producers to share the unique voice of the City of Oaks. Go to littleraleighradio.org to donate, and thanks.